Welcome back to He Leadeth Me, a spiritual formation podcast for focused staff, students, and friends. I'm your host, Jessica, and today I'm once again joined by Father Doug Grandin, our national chaplain. Now, in our last episode, Father Doug shared with us his conversion to Christianity and his journey into becoming a missionary in communist Yugoslavia. And today we are going to hear part two of his epic conversion story, where he converts to Catholicism and is eventually a priest for the Catholic Church. So I'm very excited to hear this part of your story, Father Doug. Let's begin where we left off in communist Yugoslavia. Now, there's just so much to talk about there. Uh, We're going to have to do another episode and dive into it more deeply. But just to kind of close that chapter of your life, what would you say is one of the, the biggest lessons that God taught you when you were a missionary there? It was during that time that I learned to trust God for financial provision. Uh, you know, our focus missionaries and most of our focus staff here at the DSC learns how to recruit mission partners and all of that. And it was from my missionary mentor who died a year after I had moved over to Yugoslavia for language school that I first began to learn to trust the Lord for financial provision. And then I would come over during the summer and travel about and speak in churches and God would provide for me sometimes in amazing ways, sometimes even to the exact dollar of uh, what I needed to purchase a ticket or, or something else. So God was very good in teaching me how real he was in answering concrete prayers for specific amounts of money. But I also realized during that time that to be fruitful in ministry, you really need to be well-trained. And I was well-trained. There was a lot more formation that I needed. I needed intellectual formation. Uh, I needed to finish my last two years at university. And I needed a lot more formation just to be a fruitful servant. And uh, that was one of the primary things that uh, made me conclude my time in Yugoslavia after five years and then come home, finish university, and then go to, um, to my first seminary, my evangelical seminary. All right. So you were missionary for five years and then came back and eventually went to the evangelical seminary. Were you married at this time? So my wife, Lynn, and I uh, first met when I was 14. There was nothing romantic. And I would see her from time to time when I was fundraising. She had moved to Texas. She was working for a doctor and she was playing the piano at a Protestant megachurch in Houston, where I would go to fundraise. And my last year, uh, when, I, when I went to that church, her pastor told me that she had moved back to Chicago. I asked me if I would check on her to make sure she was all right, because he knew we were friends from our time back in Illinois. And so uh, when I was fundraising in Chicago, I called her and said I was going to be speaking at a church on the north side. Her pastor had asked me to check on her. And so uh, I invited her to come up and she came up and the Protestant pastor and his wife, an elderly couple, invited me out for lunch after the last service. And I said, my friend Lynn is here. Could she come too? And they said, of course. And so we had a wonderful time, the four of us, 
She went home. I went to his house. And during conversation later that day, he said, you know, Lynn is quite an amazing woman. I think she'd be a great missionary's wife. You should think about her. And that was the beginning of what eventually turned into a romantic relationship and marriage. Well, good for him. That's that's a very subtle hint. No, it wasn't very subtle. It's quite, I'm grateful. I'm glad that uh, you took the hint. So take us from uh, this time in seminary and uh, building up to you being a pastor. Um, just tell us about that part of your life and eventually how you started thinking about, I suppose, that you the Anglican church and then the Catholic church. So as I think I might have mentioned last time, Protestants camp around, the churches camp around particular ideas and practices. And so it is quite often the case that uh, those Protestants who are very serious about their faith and their pursuing truth, that they'll move from one church to another as they gain a greater insight. And so this seminary was sponsored by a Swedish denomination called the Evangelical Free Church. There was a great revival of faith in Sweden, and it started with a Bible readers movement in homes by Lutherans. And these Lutherans said, why should we even go to the Lutheran church? They're not really preaching the gospel. They're pretty dead. And so they, they created uh, free churches that were evangelical because they were committed to the gospel. Um, there was the Swedish Evangelical Free Church, the Danish Free Church, the Norwegian Free Church, the Finnish Free Church. And when all these immigrants came in the 1800s to the United States, they joined together in the Evangelical Free Church of America. And they started this amazing seminary. Probably at that time, it was one of the top three evangelical seminaries. Very, very good, world-class scholars. And it was a good place for me to learn more about evangelization, how to do it fruitfully, to learn a great deal about the best of biblical scholarship. Uh, of course, they were deficient. They didn't have a sacramental understanding. They, we learned a little bit about the church prior to the Reformation, but not a great deal. But it was very, very helpful. And while I was in seminary, I started a church for the free church in Peoria. I commuted about three hours, two or three times a week. I would get up at uh, four o'clock in the morning. I remember I had to leave by 4.30 in order to beat the traffic around Chicago and get to my first class. And I would drive back in the afternoon and do that two or three times a week. It was so fruitful, so encouraging. And uh, we successfully started the church. One time when I was driving home, actually when I was driving to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the alternator light came on in my old, older model Honda Accord, and I drove up uh, another hour to Deerfield, Illinois, north of Chicago, and I called this Honda Volvo dealership in Plainfield, Illinois, near Joliet, Illinois. And I said, I've been driving for an hour. My alternator light is on. I know my battery's not charging. Could you get me in uh, mid-afternoon to fix this? Could I make it to you back an hour? And then could you fix it so I could drive back to Peoria? And they said, sure. And I drove down there. And while they were fixing it, a deadly tornado came through Plainfield, Illinois. And it came within a mile of that uh, Honda Volvo dealership. Everybody, there were sirens and 
and just chaos and everybody was going home. And the, the manager of the garage said uh, to me, everybody's going home to check on their families. Your, your mechanic is finishing up your car. You can go back and talk to him. And um, it was an amazing moment when I felt prompted to evangelize this fellow. And it turned out that his mother-in-law had been evangelizing him. And after I told him my story and we talked about how scary it was, you know, I told him my conversion story, we could have died and asked him, have you ever thought of committing your life to Christ? He said, my mother-in-law has been talking to me about that. And I said, you have an amazing mother-in-law. And I wouldn't want to pressure you in any way. But, you know, if you were prepared to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you could just put down your tools and we could pray together right here. And he said, that's what I'd like to do. And we prayed together and he committed his life to Christ. It was amazing, just an amazing providential moment. And I drove home the rest of the way about two hours with just the most amazing joy in my heart that God had given me this divine appointment with this fellow who was prepared to commit his life to Christ. So I learned how to evangelize better. I learned how to start a church. I learned how to preach well. And that was a happy time for us. We had a little Christian school for poor kids as well that we ran by faith, didn't charge tuition for, and God provided money miraculously again and again and again for us. And then um, I knew it was time to turn over the church to someone else. I had started a doctorate, uh, working on a doctorate at St. Louis University, the Jesuits. And just at the right time, I met my best friend for the last 32 years, Bishop Edward McBurney. We became very, very good friends. And um, it was from him that I first learned about apostolic succession, real presence in the Eucharist, and transition to, I, I say it's the hinge between my evangelical Protestant life and my evangelical Catholic life, my eight years, in the very traditional, very high church, Anglo-Catholic diocese of Quincy, Illinois, which was centered in Peoria. Wow, and what did all of your evangelical friends think about this? Most of them were confused, although there was a very strong evangelical movement in the Church of England, and many of these people were well known to my friends. So they realized that you could be an evangelical even though you were in the, I mean, immensely liberal at that time, Church of England, but our diocese was opposed to all of that. And so my, my evangelical friends in the Free Church, they knew of John Stott, Alistair McGrath, J.I. Packer, and these great evangelical Anglicans. And so they assumed that I was, I was entering into the Anglican world drawn by those people. But I was also drawn because I knew that this would be a safe environment to explore small C Catholic things. Uh, because I'd never met any Catholics like you and those who were listening to podcasts. I had never had a Catholic evangelize me or invite me to a Bible study or invite me to mass. I didn't think that there were evangelical Catholics. And so this was, I thought maybe the best that I could do. So you joined the Anglican church. It was the Episcopal Church, yeah. Oh, the Episcopal Church. Which is part of the broader Anglican movement. Okay. And then after how long were you ordained? 
so in the in the Episcopal Church, if you're previously ordained, you just need to go to an Anglican seminary for a year, and then your bishop has the freedom to ordain you anytime after when he thinks you're ready. And I was writing my doctoral dissertation for St. Louis University, so my bishop gave me three choices, and the best of the three was to a religious college that was part of the Oxford University system. So I went over there and pretty much completed my dissertation and spent a great year in Oxford. My, um, my supervisor was the uh, amazing evangelical scholar, Alistair McGrath, who, who never understood my interest in, interest in Catholic things. But uh, he told me, look, you already have a great seminary degree. You're working on a PhD. Just work on your dissertation while you're here. Come to my small group meetings and come to the chapel and then attend any lectures you want that you find helpful anywhere in Oxford. And, uh, and then that will meet the expectation. And so he was very kind to me. So what was it about the Catholic faith that was attracting you that you wanted to learn more about? Anybody who lives in this, uh, I'd say, quite amazing evangelical world loves it. There's many things that are positive, but you can't live there very long before you are shocked and horrified by the ongoing fragmentation of evangelical Christianity. They just don't have the capacity to keep even very fine independent churches or denominations unified over the long term. So I was shocked and horrified by that. I was astounded that after 2,000 years of church history, I still had the option as a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church um, to believe this or that, to practice this or that. I thought, I began to think, I mean, doesn't the church have it together enough where like they could tell me what I'm supposed to do? In, in these areas. I knew that the Episcopal Church was uh, in a very bad way as far as liberalism. My bishop friend had told me, we're fighting the, a last ditch battle um, for traditional Anglicanism and we're probably gonna lose, but it was a safe place for me. And so I went over to England, hoping to encounter a fairly vibrant um, church in England uh, one that had a, a pretty vibrant Catholic wing to it, again, small C Catholic. What I found is that um, uh, the Catholic wing was compromised. It couldn't, as I used to say, preach, out of, preach itself out of a paper bag, didn't have the capacity to evangelize. So I, I moved from the Anglo-Catholic Religious College, which was very sad, to the evangelical Anglican College, which was very dynamic. But of course, that was more of the same that I had had at my, at my Evangelical Free Church um, uh, seminary. It was a safe place. It was a happy place. But I came to realize that um, apart from the evangelicals, the Church of England itself was being taken over by the liberals. And no help was going to come from the Church of England to its daughter church in America, the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so I pretty much realized that the Anglican Church, 
the Episcopal Church in America couldn't be my home long term. And I even flew back to be ordained in April of that year. And a day, bef- a, a day before I was to be ordained, I told my first bishop, my friend, there was a new bishop at that time, that I, I, I think I needed to become Catholic and I, I, sh- I can't be ordained. It was a big scandal. Of course, it was the day before I was to be ordained as the only one in the cathedral to be ordained to the diaconate. I flew back to England. My wife and I talked about this. I wasn't ready. I hadn't counted the cost yet to become Catholic. My wife was still five years before her decision to become Catholic. And so we essentially said, you know, what God has shown us in the light that we should do, we shouldn't doubt in the darkness of the moment. We should support these two bishops who are fighting the last ditch fight. And so a month later, I went back with my family and was ordained to the diaconate and then rather quickly ordained to the priesthood. I served five years as a clergyman in the Episcopal Church. And during that time, I realized that because we had broken away from the Catholic Church in the early 1500s under Henry, because Henry wanted to be the head of the church rather than the Bishop of Rome, that we couldn't be Catholic in any true sense of the word. We could look Catholic. If you would have come to my masses back then, Episcopal masses, you would have thought you were in the Catholic Church. Everything looked pretty much the same. And yet I I had concluded, because um, I was a church historian, I had concluded that, in fact, uh, my bishops didn't have the authority to ordain me, as they said, a Catholic priest in the Anglican tradition. And so I went to my second bishop and told him that I really had doubts that I may indeed be giving people just bread and wine. And he said, if you feel that way, you need to become Roman Catholic. And so I did. And my, that whole diocese left the Episcopal church about five years later, but sadly didn't become Catholic. They became something else Anglican, which is more of the story of fragmentation. They can't help themselves. But it was the beginning of my finding a church that had the authority to tell me what I should believe and what I should practice. And I'm grateful that in 2003, my wife and I and our four youngest children came into the church. And five years later, my bishop, he was granted permission by Pope Benedict to ordain me a married Catholic priest. And I'm grateful for that privilege. That's just an incredible story. So let's return to you become a Catholic. Now, you have been uh, serving in leadership as a pastor and then as an Anglican priest, and that's very much been on your heart. And I understand that when you converted to Catholicism, it wasn't addressed right away. Oh, yes, you can be a married Catholic priest. So for a while, you were a layman, correct? Yeah, when uh, the process leading to to the decision, I am going to become Catholic, it first involves a lot of theological wrestling, reading, conversations. Uh, that That took over 10 years for me because I'm a very, very conservative person. I make transitions very slowly. The latter part of that, after you're convinced that you should do this in order to be in order to be uh, faithful to the truth, then you take you take some time, and for me it was some years, 
deciding, am I willing to pay the price? It's a great price. You do feel like I was extremely confident that God had called me to be ordained, that he had called me to be a missionary in the context of that ordination. And uh, I love preaching. I love preaching and teaching. And so to, become, to, to enter into the Catholic Church means most likely you'll be a layman for the rest of your life. So I counted the costs. Lynn had come to the place. She had, hers was a different path. Not so much theology and history, but social teaching. Many Catholic women are shocked to learn that it was, it was actually the pro-life movement. But even more specifically, it was the church's heroic insistence that artificial contraception is wrong. She became convinced of that and, uh, and said, I want to be in a, in, in a church like that, that heroically stand for what's right morally, even when maybe the majority of Catholics reject that. So, so at the same time, I had counted the costs and said, I want to do this. Lynn was ready. Um, so we came into the churches as, as I came in as a layman. And you don't know how you're going to support your family. That's the scary thing. I came in not having a job, not knowing what I was going to do. Bishop Jenke told me, I can't offer you a job ahead of time. I can't, I can't even promise you priesthood. It doesn't lie with me, uh, even if I was able to do that. And then in the spring of that year, Bishop Jenke asked Lynn and me to come in and talk to him. And he said, I forget if it was the Blessed Virgin Mary or Jesus said to me, Doug Grandin is to be your new catechetical director. And I said, what does that involve? And he said, you would be in charge of faith formation and scripture study in all of our parishes in the diocese. And I said, I've only been a Catholic for eight months. This is sort of a story of my life, my Catholic life. And he said, but you were well-trained in evangelization and scripture study. You know how to do this. You became Catholic at great cost. And because you believe in what we're doing, you believe in the truth. And I said, would you give me a year to figure it out? And then um, after a year, I will present some programs, some plans to you. And so I had a very good four years doing that. And that's how I became friends with Tim Gray, who eventually invited us to Denver um, nearly 12 years ago now. And Father Doug, you had an immense cost of becoming a Catholic. And I remember once in a homily, you talked about how you had had a dream to be uh, a priest in the Anglican faith. And then you realized that in becoming Catholic, you would have to give that up. And you talked about in the scriptures, the concept of a dream and then the death of a dream. And I think you called it the rebirth or the resurrection of a dream. Can you tell us about that concept right now? Yeah, thank you. I have always loved preaching and teaching. My, spirit, my primary spiritual gift is teaching. So always, as I had to discern again, whether I was called to be ordained the first time in my Pentecostal church uh, to be a missionary, and then the Evangelical Free Church to be ordained, and then the, the Episcopal Church to be ordained into more of a sacramental understanding where you're preaching and celebrating, as we understood it, a mass in other sacraments. And then the big one, like Catholic priesthood, especially 
crossing over this huge divide between the Catholic Church and Protestants. You leave that behind, you become a layman. That, that fundamentally for all of us clergy converts means death to our original vision that we were called to be preachers. And then if for those of us who came from a sacramental church, like the Episcopal Church, Lutherans are somewhat the same, giving up this understanding that we are to be sacramental ministers as well. You have to die to that. It's like what Jesus said, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. We were rich men. We, we thought we had it. We understood our call. And now we have to die to it. And it's extremely painful. And that death, it involves the discernment process. And then it involves those years after you become Catholic. And death, that death means that that may not ultimately be God's purpose for you. You may never get it back. You may have to die to it forever. It was five years of discernment, and then the bishop and a canon lawyer working with the Vatican, praying about this, dying to it, going through all the trials that it involves of not preaching, not celebrating the Eucharist, not baptizing. It was really, really hard. And then you just wait to see if the Lord will give this back. You just wait. And I remember, Eva, things are moving along, and um, the person, um, Monsignor Stetson, Opus Dei priest, who was in charge of the Washington Information Center for Opus Dei, he called me and he said, it's with Pope Benedict now. And of course, it would have been in a stack of papers, you know, three feet high, and he goes through and he signs off or not, many other things, not just not just the process for me and others, but all sorts of things that he has to sign off on or not. And so he said, let's pray that God's will will be done. And I remember saying to him, because I was kind of nervous, I said, what if he signs it and I discern that I shouldn't do this? And I remember him saying, Doug, if Pope Benedict signs off on this, this is God's will for you, and every doubt should go out the window. And he signed off on it, and it went to the CDF, and the head of the CDF, the former Archbishop of San Francisco, signed off on it. I have in, in my office here the signature of the head of the CDF authorizing my bishop in Peoria, Bishop Dan Jenke, to ordain me. I also have my ordination certificate here in my office at Focus. So you die to the self. You go through the struggle you die to this vision, this dream, you go through the struggle. And then if God wants to give it back, he resurrects it. And you are a more virtuous person because of the struggle. We see this again and again. I give talks on this all over. You see this again and again. You see it with Abraham, who had to die to this vision he was given, promise that he would have a child and become the father of many nations. You see it with Joseph, Joseph, who literally had two dreams that he was going to do something so amazing that his family would bow down to him. He was so foolish that he told them. And then he's sold into slavery. It goes from bad to worse. He's in prison. He's forgotten. And then God resurrects the vision 
And it happens as second in command in Egypt to Pharaoh, he saves his family. And he's such a man of character at that point that rather than be proud, he weeps and he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He's become a man of virtue. I think most all of us, if we just ponder the path that the Lord has led us on, we can see at least one of these um, situations where we had to die to something and God gave it back to us and we learned virtue through the process. I think that is just such a hopeful message because I know so many people who had a dream and maybe that dream was serving the Lord in a religious vocation where they get married and they have a dream of having children and things don't work out. And they wonder, well, is this not God's will for me? What does he want to do with this vision that I had or this dream in my heart? And they have to die to themselves in a very real way. And yet you pointed out so clearly in the scriptures that God sometimes resurrects that dream in a way that we never would have imagined. Just like you had this dream and to be a preacher and a priest, and you thought that you had to completely give it up. And yet God resurrected it. And that's such a message of hope for anyone who is currently in that dying to self process that God never asks for a death without planning a resurrection. But it's so painful, that intermediate period. A few years ago, I, I was um, deeply immersed in the life of St. Paul. I read uh, N.T. Wright's marvelous biography of St. Paul, which gave me some new insights. And if you think about St. Paul, St. Paul had this vision of being highly educated, a Pharisee, of helping bring in the kingdom by forcing um, obedience among all the Jews. That's why he was persecuting Christians. Um, Because Israel had to be obedient universally for the kingdom to come. Um, And then he has that um, encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He goes to Arabia to try to figure out how this all fits together. His knowledge of the Old Testament, the resurrection. He's given spiritual insights there. He goes back to Damascus. He preaches up a storm. The believers in Damascus say, you're making things too hot for us here, too dangerous. We got to get you out of town. And they lower him in a basket and he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to meet with the apostles. They think it's a trick. This amazing comforter, Barnabas, son of comfort, encourager, facilitates a meeting then for Paul. He preaches up a storm after he's given the right hand of fellowship. And the apostles say to him, you got to get out of Jerusalem. You're making it too hard for us. They're persecuting us all the more now. We already had trouble. And they actually send men to go with him to Caesarea and put him on a boat. And he goes back to his mom and dad's house in Tarsus. And as I say to university students often, it appears that for some long period, maybe even years, he's working with his dad in his leather business. And he's sleeping, I always say, sleeping on his parents' couch. And he must have, and he was told by Ananias in Damascus, your mission in life is to be an evangelist and a missionary 
to Jews, to Gentiles, and even kings you're going to evangelize. And he's sleeping on mom and dad's couch for a few years. Like, what is this all about? But he had to die to self, and he had to wait until the right time. And there's persecution, and the Christians flee up to the second largest city in the Roman Empire, Antioch. Barnabas, the son of Comfort, the encourager, is sent up there to organize things. And it's way too much for him. And he says, what can I do? I need to get more help. Paul's in Tarsus. Saul, it still is. He sends for Saul. Saul comes. They're working together, and they're praying and fasting. And one day, the Holy Spirit says, separate for my work, my missionary work, Saul and Barnabas. And they're commissioned by the church. Off they go on the first missionary journey. And Saul, eventually Paul, finds his dream, lives his dream in a totally different way, but after many years of pain. So I think the message is don't ever give up. You don't always get back exactly what you thought God was going to do. It may be in a dramatically different form, but God will be faithful. But it, it, we become fruitful after not only formation, but often a lot of suffering that makes us more virtuous. That is such an important message for all of us, and especially for those who are going through that death to self process and feel like they're sleeping on mom and dad's couch and are going to be there forever. Don't give up. God will remain faithful. And your life story is certainly a testament to God's faithfulness. So thank you for sharing that with us today. It's truly been an epic journey. So we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. And thank you for your yes. Could we close today with a blessing? Yes. Heavenly Father, you are providential over the entire universe and certainly providential over each of our individual lives. Would you continue to bless all of us together as we pursue truth, as we endeavor as much as we know to do to serve you, to use all the talents that you have invested in us. And please help us never to be discouraged during those times when we're confused, when our circumstances are dark, because that is really when you are doing the most to fashion us and move us forward toward your ultimate purpose for our lives. Protect us from every evil. Protect us from discouragement. Give us fullness of grace, fullness of the Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.